church. So I figured we'd just bring back Johnny. Uh, he was on such a roll after worship. I mean, am I needed? No, no just kidding. I'm kidding. No, I do have uh, a message for us that I've prepared, so I'm not going to throw that away. But uh, just glad to see you all. Welcome, welcome. Um, I just want to tell you a little story about when I started college. I went to the University of Dayton, and I went there knowing no one. Has anybody gone away to college and not know a single soul there? Anybody? Hands up? Yeah. <clears throat> so you know the feeling. But I was raised in church my whole life, so I figured the, the first thing that I should do was find a, a good church home in this new town that I was in. And so I went to the church that was right across the street from the campus and uh, wasn't going to go back there. That wasn't a fun experience. <clears throat> but uh, so I, I called my parents and had them ask around some friends from, uh, from our church back home and and this one couple uh, who was involved and in, really connected into a charismatic Methodist movement. Did you guys know that something existed like that? No, I didn't, <clears throat> but it does. Uh, they were really connected with the charismatic Methodist movement, and so they uh, had some friends that had a church in, in Dayton. And uh, they called their friends. They arranged for somebody from that church to come and pick me up on campus and take me back to campus Got a couple free meals out of it, which is like worth going to church for when you're in college, right? No, so, but it was a, it was a very different experience of church than I'd ever had before. So the church that I grew up in was a Methodist church, very traditional, you know, choir with robes, organ, uh, very congregationally monochromatic. Um, and then I go to this church, it's inner city Dayton. Uh, charismatic, Pentecostal-ish. So needless to say, completely different experience than what I was uh, accustomed to in a Methodist church. So it was the first Methodist church service that I had ever been to where somebody actually interacted with the pastor, right? We hear amen, shouting hallelujah, preach it, right? Like all of that stuff. I've never heard that before in a Methodist service. I've been to some other services before and heard that, but never, never in the Methodist church that I grew up in. But uh, there was this one woman who called out in, in a way that I will never forget. And it was right in the middle of the sermon. Preacher was going. He was coming, bringing his point home, sweating up a storm, right, with the towel and everything, right? Okay. Driving his point home, and then everybody's shouting and responding, and she comes out with the greatest callback ever. She's like, so? I, I mean, I was shook. I was like, how, how do you... How, you can't say that. But apparently this wasn't the first time she said that because the preacher was completely unfazed and just kept on going. And I have to say, though, as I've been to a lot of church services and, and listened to a lot of sermons, I keep on coming back to that question from that woman. And I've really resonated with that. So? So what, right? So what now, even? And so what do we do in light of everything that we've just learned and heard about? I think it seems like a very heavy and defining question for our society today, our community, for us even as individuals and us as a church. Up until this point in our series, this Come Together series, we've covered a lot of ground on, on topics of unity, right? The, the problem of implicit biases, the need for diversity, and we even asked the question in the beginning, why church? 
And now that we've covered all that ground, now that we've talked about that, I want us to ask the question, so, so what? So what now? What is it all for? And to answer this question, I want us to, to take a look at how the first expression of church in Acts, the first expression of church that we see in scriptures, uh, responded to what they faced and what they heard about in, the, in, in, in their context, in their culture, in their community, and as a church. But before we get any further, let me, let me just pray. Father God, we're just thankful for you and your presence here today. God, we ask that your presence would be with us and it would be uh, not only just here, but it would be felt and experienced by each of us here. And it would be felt and experienced in every classroom where everybody is gathered in this church, that your presence would be made known to us. God, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to receive the word that you have for us today. And that your presence would be magnified and multiplied in this place. Amen. Amen. So, let me just get this out of the way. If I hear somebody say so to me while preaching, I may just stop and just walk off the stage. So, don't get any ideas. I don't want to hear it. In, re- in reality, I'm going to be asking that question a lot today. So, uh, I'll ask that question and you guys can just uh, keep it to yourself. No, just kidding. Uh, kind of kidding. Uh, I have to say, it, it takes little to no effort uh, as we look around our community, as we look around our world, as we look around in our families and our churches, it takes little to no effort to see that there is a lot of need around us. It takes little to no effort to drive to and from work to see that there's need. To driving our kids to and from school or going to, to and from school, to running errands around town to seeing that there is obvious need in our community. There's obvious need around us. The reports of uh, food insecurities in our schools and our communities are just increasing and going crazy. The amount of homelessness that we hear across the country, just homelessness rates are just rising tremendously. Not to mention the the warring in, in Ukraine. But it's easy for us to sit at home or even here in church and think that those problems are for other places, are in other places, and And they really have no effect on me here and us here in Fairfield County. However, at our food pantry, we see every week the numbers increasing. And we see more and more people sleeping on benches and by the railways. And we can be certain that it's not an isolated incident elsewhere. But it really does have tremendous impact on us and our community and as us as individuals. You know, even the fighting in Ukraine has found its impact here with us. And in some ways, it's increasing that food and, home and, and housing insecurities that we see by, you know, disrupting supply chains, driving up prices of everything, just making things worse and worse. Not to mention the heartache that we all experience from the loss of life from tremendous and terrible, horrendous warring going on, and maybe it's just the social anxiety that hits you from the potential of just a greater conflict and even a possible another world war. Needless to say, there is a great amount of need, church, in our world, in our community, and even, even here, right here in our church. 
So I'm going to ask the question so you don't have to. So, so what? So what do we do about it? John Tyson in his book, Beautiful Resistance, talks about how there are really two common reactions when confronted with need and uh, a great level of need and, and poverty. One is defensiveness, and the other is an appeal for personal responsibility. So the defensiveness reaction will say something to the effects of, hey, I've earned and worked hard for everything I have, right? Or someone say, I'm not relying on anyone else for anything that I have or do. Or maybe they'll say something along the lines of, you know, I only have limited margins, so not my people, not my problem. And then on the other side, there's the appeal for personal responsibility, which shares the perspective that to get ahead in America is really not that hard, right? They'll just tell you to finish high school, don't get pregnant out of wedlock, and get a job, and you'll be fine, right? That's all you need to do to not be poor in America. In essence, what this reaction is saying is you just need to accept responsibility for your life. Just do the right thing, and everything will be just fine, Move on and make something of yourself. We say that and we think, how could anybody ever say something like that? And then we're like, oh, whoops, maybe I already did in some way, shape, or form. But I have to ask, is this how Jesus would respond? Is this how Jesus would respond to great need and poverty and situations of injustice? Is this how he calls his church to respond to such people and in situations? Yes, granted, there might be some elements of truth in those responses. But is it how we should really approach situations of poverty, need, and injustice? So I want us to take a look at the early church in the book of Acts to get a better way to see how they responded to such instances of poverty and need and injustice and see how the followers of Jesus in Acts responded so if you turn to your Bibles, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2. And uh, in Acts chapter 2, we come to, we're going to come to verses uh, 42 through 47. But the book of Acts is, um, book of Acts is the, just the, the story of the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles, after Jesus left, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he came back to earth. And he met with his, uh, his apostles. And, and, and really in Acts chapter 1, we see this, the, the Jesus promising the Holy Spirit and, and ascending into heaven. And so the book of Acts comes right after that, and it just tells all the accounts and everything that happened with the apostles. Uh, and, and what we see in chapter 2 is um, the account of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to earth, just like Jesus promised, right, with great winds, flames above people's heads, people speaking in every different language, just like every other Sunday that service that you go to, right? I mean... That's just normal, right? No. And so it's at that point, right after, uh, and, or I'm sorry, after, after the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost uh, comes, breaks out, and Peter, who Jesus said, Peter, you're my rock, I'm going to build my church on you. He preaches his first of many amazing sermons right after then. And as a result of his sermon, 3,000 some people receive the message of the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah that Jesus is raised from the dead, and they come to believe and follow Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 42. And so read along with me. It says, they devoted themselves, they being the people who, the 3,000 people who just 
came to know Jesus and gave their life to Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It's an incredible account. What's even more incredible is two chapters later we see a very similar story in Acts 4, verses 32 to 35. It's the same thing. It's just the same, it's the same church except it's much larger now. Right? Because they kept on adding to their numbers every day. So it's the same people, but just more. And so we read in verse 32, chapter 4, verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed, right, the bigger group, were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead they held everything in common. With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. See, what we see from these followers of Jesus is as a radical expression of generosity for their time and for their place and their culture that they were in. And I would say certainly that is a radical expression of generosity for our current time and our current culture. We see these new followers flipping the narrative, changing the story completely around of their lives and the lives of those around them by the way they lived out the change that has been made in their lives. We, receive, we see them responding in stark contrast to those cultural responses that I shared earlier. Right? There's no deflection putting it off on someone else. There's no defensiveness. There's no uh, condemnation or there's no condescension towards someone else's life uh, behaviors and life situations. It's just their radical, sacrificial giving and generosity to take care of one another. And as a result, when the church comes together, the unchurched noticed. As 3,000 people were added at the beginning and then every day, people were being added to their numbers, and the church grows. So I get that you might be thinking, oh great, here's the guy who's in charge of the finances at church coming to talk to us about giving, so get out your checkbooks and start giving more. I get it, and I'll just tell you, so, no, just kidding. No, I get it because uh, it's awkward for me to talk about giving just as much as it's awkward for you to hear about giving. But I want us to take a step further beyond just giving because what we see here in these passages is more than just giving. It's more than just handing over things and getting out your checkbook. I want us to take a step further beyond giving because what the first church shows us here is, is not just rules and obligations and responsibilities to follow, but it's the way of Jesus that is lived out. Yes, giving and generosity is part of that, but it's only just part. So let's unpack this a bit, and let's have a look at, at what happened when the first church came together. 
right? We're in our series, Come Together, and, and looking at both of these passages in Acts, we see the same pattern of what happens when the church comes together, when the church was formed, and people came together to be part of that church. The first part of that pattern was the new followers devoted themselves to being transformed, right? We see that in the first verse. They, all of them gathered together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to so many things. They received the teaching of the apostles. They fellowshiped with one another, right? They took communion together and they prayed together. They went from house to house sharing life and being formed into the image of Jesus and they were sharing the good news of the kingdom and the resurrection of Jesus all along the way. It's amazing to see that when they devoted themselves to being transformed, the result was transformation. When they devoted themselves to being transformed, they were transformed. Acts 4.32 says, they were of one heart and mind. I tell you what, that is one significant mark of transformation, right? Being of one heart and mind. The only way that people from many backgrounds and families, and heck, even in the same family, to be in one mind and one heart, it has to be a radical transformation, transformative work of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, just... There's no, uh, there's no amount of counseling, self-help books, conferences that you can go to that would make such a thing a reality here on earth. Just think about your last Thanksgiving gathering, or any family gathering for that matter, when somebody just broke the, the unwritten rules of talking about politics. Was there a oneness of heart and mind in the room? No. Unless you were the one that broke the rule and thought there was, but nonetheless... But the followers of Jesus devoted themselves to being transformed, and what they saw was transformation. Transformation of themselves, transformation of the community and the people around them, and transformation of the new people joining their community in the church every single day. Because of the transformation that they were experiencing, we see them changing the way that they lived their lives. We see them changing the way they handled their possessions, their material possessions. The apostles, I have to imagine the apostles' teaching included stories of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount where he said, where your treasures are, there will be your heart. I can picture the apostles, part of the apostles' teaching where them teaching uh, Jesus taught for uh, his heart for the poor. They taught about Jesus' heart for the poor and, and taking care of what the least of these, Right? And I'm sure they shared how Jesus met the woman at the well. How Jesus met and healed the woman who was bleeding and outcast from society for her life. Or I'm sure that the apostles shared the story that Jesus told about the great banquet, right? Where he told the rich guy to invite only, to fill his table only with the poor people and outcasts, those in need, so that they wouldn't be able to repay him for the banquet. So imagine this is the teaching that the apostles were giving and that the new followers of Jesus were receiving. This is the transformation they were hearing. And because of that transformation, the followers of Jesus followed the way of Jesus. These new followers of Jesus followed the way of Jesus that they learned from the apostles and let go of their obsession with their material possessions and goods and just gave them sacrificially. Not because they felt that they had to, not because they were told to, not because they were, it was written down in a rule that they had to, it's, big, it's but because that's what they saw Jesus do. 
and they were going to live and imitate a life of Jesus. See, these followers of Jesus looked at all they had and gave what they didn't need. You know, and I honestly, I understand what it says, like they gave all that they had, and it might appear that they gave literally everything, but I don't think that's 100% accurate, right? Because, first of all, simple, simple case, is if they sold all their properties, then they wouldn't have been able to go to house to house to eat together, right? Because they wouldn't have a house to go to. So, I don't believe that it's everything, but I do believe they took stock of all that they had, looked at all the extras that they had, all the extra properties, the lands, the vacation homes, the unused plots of lands that they might have, the stuff that they had in their attics and in their storage sheds, collecting dust and maybe a little bit of value. And they were convinced that they would be better served in the hands of the church and not themselves. This radical and and sacrificial generosity wasn't for show or or wasn't even for privilege's sake, but exactly the opposite. This radical and sacrificial generosity was for the sake of others. Because of their generosity, they were able to pool all their resources and make sure everyone in their mix was taken care of. Both passages we read in Acts 2 and 4 speak of doing just that. All the proceeds, it says, all the proceeds collected and then distributed to each person as they had any need. See, they not only saw and looked at their material possessions differently, they saw people differently. People as equals, as on their same level, things that we've talked about earlier in this season, in this series. That people are like us. We read in in Philippians, a letter uh, written by Paul, and even though Paul was uh, after this time, I imagine Paul had the same teachings as these followers of Jesus did, but we get an, Im- a, an image and a glimpse of what Jesus, uh, the example that Jesus puts out. And he says in Philippians 2, uh, verses 3 through 7, Paul says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. That's an example. It's an example I imagine this first century church heard all about. See, Jesus gave everything he had and everything he was, not for the sake of his own self, but for the sake of humankind. He gave up everything he had, everything he was, including his own very life. See, the first church that we read about here in Acts is taking up that same attitude, that same mindset, and how they view everyone else. They're being of one heart and being of one mind, transformed by the Holy Spirit. They sacrificially gave and were able to take care of the poor and the needs of the community so that no one around them had any need at all. John Tyson says, quotes this, as those imitating Jesus' example, we are called to distribute what we have been given by Jesus to those around us. And when Christians embrace this responsibility, we have the credibility in the eyes of the world. See, what's crazy is what we see in the first church is not that they were 
being transformed, yes, that's awesome, and they were giving sacrificially, that's great, and not only that, but they were giving and taking care of the poor, incredible stuff, but what was the result, right? So, who we were, so what? It's amazing, because when they did those things, the unchurched noticed. As John Tyson just said, when we embrace this responsibility, we have credibility in the eyes of the world. People look at us differently. And when the church comes together and cares for the poor, the unchurched notice. See, throughout history, the church has come together to care for the most in-need people in the world, most outcast people of history, all because they're following the example of Jesus. There's a story about uh, Emperor Julian, who was just nasty and hated Christians. He even, uh, um, he noticed how the Christians, as he called them, pagans. That makes sense, right? When you hate somebody, you just belittle them, call them names, right? No, he called the Christians, he said, uh, he noticed how they were caring for the poor. And he noticed that as he, the emperor, was trying to kill everybody and kill a lot of people, torture and leaving people for dead, the Christians would go out and take care of these people, restore them back to life, and give them the care that they needed. It just so happened that everybody in Rome started to like the Christians and not the emperor. And so the emperor told his leaders and all of his people, hey, we need to start acting like the Christians and taking care of these people that were hurting because we are losing favor in the eyes of the people. So even this nasty emperor noticing what the Christians were doing says we need to be like them and care for the people because we need to gain the favor of the people back. So there are countless stories even uh, throughout the history of the plagues uh, and people just being left for dead and oh man, it's crazy. You know, like somebody has a sign. It's, I mean, come on. Maybe it's a little too close to home, but you know, you get a sniffle and then you have COVID, right? It's like back then you had a cold and you're like, you got the plague, kick you out, right? Like, I'm just going to throw you out on the street, you're done. And uh, families would just uh, abandon people, even though they weren't dead, they thought they might be soon dead. So they would just kick them out. And, and it, guess who it was that came through the streets and picked up all these people and took care of them? It was the Christians, it was the followers of Jesus. You know what? And they weren't worried about their own lives. Because they realized and recognized if, if they were to die taking care of people, they would see it as a martyr, themselves as a martyr, and they would be a martyr because they, were, they died doing the work of Jesus himself. So when the church comes together to take care of the needy and the poor, the unchurched notice. So we see in Acts 2.47, the Lord adding to their numbers those who were being saved and as a result of them coming together. We see similar languages uh, throughout Acts, multiple occurrences when they, the, we see in Acts, it's just like, and numbers were added, people were added to their numbers time and time again. See, when the church comes together, the kingdom of God expands. When the church comes together, the unchurched notice, and the kingdom of God expands. See, the church of today is what it is, because of those who devoted themselves to being imitators and followers of Jesus, sacrificially gave to, to take care of the poor, standing out for the unchurched to notice and welcoming them into the kingdom. There's a pattern there. And this church is the answer to so. In a time of great need in our world, 
in a time of great need in the community around us, in a time of great need in our church, in our families, we come together to expand the kingdom. And it takes all of us. It takes all of us to come together, to give radically and sacrificially, and to take care of those in need so that the unchurched can take notice and we can expand the kingdom of God here on earth. So, how can you apply this life to your life today? Simply put, I'd say just follow the example of the apostles. It's written there, right? Step one, I think, is devote yourself to being transformed. Devote yourself to being transformed. See, the transformation of the apostles was, in the, the early church was, was the foundation of the result and the outcomes that we see in the early church. Transformation occurs when we devote ourselves to it, right? Crazy that they devoted themselves to being transformed, and they were transformed. It's not a matter of just saying, yes, I want that. But remember what the first church did. They learned from the apostles. And we do that right now by reading our Bibles and and studying the scriptures soaking them in. They prayed, not just little five to ten minute, like, thank you God, Uh, God I need this prayers, but they committed to deep prayer, deep communion and communication with God. They fellowshiped with one another, joining with one another on the journey and encouraging and spurring each other along the way. They went to church to be built up and to learn, and they ate meals with one another taking part in a shared meal where they, you know, they share with each other what's going on and what the Lord is doing and, and praising God together and worshiping together. Devote yourself to being transformed so you can experience the transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring. Another way you can apply this is to, to consider ways to give sacrificially. John Wimber, uh, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, has a great quote. He says, When the church comes together, the manifest presence of God is magnified and multiplied. See, when you give and you give sacrificially, your gift is joined with the others to multiply the effectiveness and and the reach of your gift. Alone, you can do some good, yes. Alone, you can have some impact, for sure. But when the church comes together, our gifts are multiplied. And we can do greater good and have greater impact than just one. Again, I'm not here to tell you that you all need to give more. I'm here to invite you to step into a life of transformation and ask the Lord what he wants from you. I don't want to tell you what to do. I mean, nobody wants to be told what to do. Our kids, I mean, I remember as a kid and yesterday not being wanted to tell being told what to do i don't like it but when we hear when we ask the lord and when we hear from him he's not commanding us and demanding that we do these things he's inviting us to respond to him and so that's what i want to do that's what i want you to do is to go to the lord i i just invite you to go to the lord and seek out the transformation that he wants to bring about in you It's through our radical and sacrificial giving that the kingdom of God expands. 
You know, and it may not just be material possessions that, or of, of money that we need to give, but, you know, we have resources of time, of wisdom, of experience and skills that can be shared and passed along to, to all those people in need. So consider ways to sacrificially give. And then thirdly, find ways to serve. You know, what areas of ministry of the church can you serve in that you aren't already? I mean, kids' ministry, where you can expand the kingdom of God by connecting uh, our kids to the presence and the power of God in a classroom. Expanding the kingdom through kids' ministry. Could it be at our food pantry, where each week there's an opportunity to not only do exactly what we read about in Acts, and caring for the poor and giving to those in need, but to magnify and multiply the presence of God to the least of these, those in need, right here in our community? Or is it here on Sunday mornings, you know, as a greeter or an usher, to be the first experience of our church that some people might have, with a smile, a handshake, a welcome? You know, it's a perfect opportunity for you to magnify the presence of God to people visiting for the first time. Other ways to serve. Did I already mention kids' ministry? Yeah. If not, I'll mention it again. No, just kidding. But wherever the Lord leads you, find a way to serve and to do what the church did in meeting the needs through the church and of the church. You know, and as we close out our Come Together series, we see that the church has impact greater than any of us as individuals do. We as individuals can do some good things and have some great impact. But when the church comes together and cares for the poor, the unchurched noticed, and the kingdom expands. Because we can do more together than we can.